Let's face it, working alone all day on screen isn't normal. So here's how to recognise and combat the threat to our well-being that comes with tech that's hard to switch off. Yes, digital fatigue is a thing. I found 133 million results on Google. Take new research by the London South Bank University, which suggests that digital fatigue is a threat to employee well-being. A recent CIPD update poll found 8 in 10 workers had experienced Zoom fatigue. It's a recognised state of physical and mental exhaustion. Cut off from colleagues, our workdays driven by stacks of on-screen devices and life-sapping Zoom meetings. With us this month, a psychologist and psychotherapist who lectures in social sciences at Bristol Uni, Dr Nilu Ahmed. She has a deep interest in how the pandemic has changed the workplace. Hello. Hello there. Mark Whedon is Senior HR Director at Zora, an enterprise software provider which specialises in subscription-based products. Hello. Hello. And from the home team, the CIPD Senior Advisor for Organisational Behaviour, whose research is steeped in the elements of what makes job quality and the use of social technology, is Johnny Gifford. Hello. Hey. So, Johnny, before we get into the detail of what triggers this digital fatigue and how to combat it, let's look at the big picture. I mean, we're all doing more remote working, less commuting, more flexibility. I mean, we're all wearing comfier clothes for this meeting. So I wonder why maybe we're sometimes less than comfortable. Well, we should mention that perhaps through the pandemic, some people have seen improvements in their work-life balance. So there's a bit of a tale of two cities going on here, especially uh, for managers and professionals. But in terms of why remote and digital working might worsen employee well-being, I think there are some fundamentals that we do well to start with. One is the nature of working from home has partly changed. So where it used to be seen more as a benefit or even a privilege, um, through the pandemic, it's been a necessity and it doesn't suit everyone. So you might not have a suitable physical work environment. You might have uh, serious distractions from people that you work with. Uh, it might not suit the nature of your work. A second challenge is that when we feel pressure to be always on, which is really about organisational climate um, and is something that can exist anyway, but it can intensify with mobile or remote technology because there's, you know, there's that potential for work to always be there. And then a third aspect is that there's a, a concerning general trend to a loss of employee autonomy or control over one's work. So, uh, and some employees also see greater work intensity. And again, that's not something that's unique to working digitally, but changes in technology can play a role. So, Dr. Nilu Ahmed, is this something which is reflected uh, in your work, your research, in the things that people tell you? It, it really is. People are talking about working longer hours. And um, as Johnny said, there is a sense of at the start of the pandemic, when we went into lockdown, there's almost a novelty element of that, that, oh God, we're all working from home. All of that ability to not have a commute going into work, the extra time we had, 
enjoying the company of people around us. And suddenly all of the things that were really lovely at the start of the lockdown are perhaps the things that are starting to grate on us ever so much right now when we've got sort of family members who are also competing for just things like the internet bandwidth and when people can be online at the same time as each other, but also working spaces. Some people will be in bedrooms, some people will be in dining rooms. If you're lucky, you'll have spaces that you can share out and work separately from. But if not everyone is as privileged as that. And w- when we were talking before, you used this phrase cognitive overload. <laughs> what did you mm. mean by that? It means that we're constantly assaulted by things. When we're looking at Zoom, we're getting so much information. Our brains process lots and lots of information at the same time, but we filter through for the most important things. But that doesn't mean our brain isn't always processing what's going on in the background when we're having these conversations. And so we're constantly picking up new things. Every time we join a new Zoom meeting, there's a bit of background that we're looking at, whether we're paying conscious attention or not. Subconsciously, our brains are thinking, oh, look at that picture. Oh, look at that lighting there. And that's all having to be dealt with while we're still trying to do our daily job and focus on the task at hand. Mark Wheaton, a lot of the focus has been on meetings, hasn't it? And uh, I've seen research, what, from Stanford talking about how just having your own picture uh, in frame doesn't help. And there's lots of other stuff, uh, some of which we've already touched on here, to do with reading body language and interpreting silences and everything. Have you found meetings have been a particular issue with your people? I mean, what do you think the stress points are that lead to perhaps this digital fatigue? Yeah, meetings are an issue, and, and, and particularly in an environment like my organisation, where we have employees scattered over the world, and there's a lot, a lot of remote management to do. Uh, there's there's no doubt that you know calls over video are, are, are more tiring than than face to face ones. So there's always the pressure of having to deal with glitchy tech. You know, the video buffering, cutting out altogether. Um, is my bandwidth going to last? just trying to read the non-verbal cues which are more straightforward perhaps when you're in a face-to-face environment in a meeting room with the same people. I mean this is something you would never tolerate if the meeting was in the same room. No exactly exactly so it's just additional layers of of, of stress and even I find personally looking at my own image on a zoom call for example that's stressful as well so even having to stare at your own face as well as those of others. And then there's obviously the the, the distraction element. So um, you know the kid's going to you know run in at one stage, or in my case, you know the two cats going to come and nag me for my food. So just anticipating things which wouldn't happen in uh, you know the, the the regular day-to-day environment before COVID. So I, I agree, yeah. Just more broadly, Mark, from the conversations you have with your people scattered around the world, what other particular things do they say are more stressful since you've had to change the way you've worked out of offices into private homes? So one of them has been mentioned already, and it's this lack of or guarding against a more defined start and end point. So ordinarily, if you're going to an office, there's a commute zone, for example, and you know, that almost represents a start to the day and an end to the day. So what we've been combating with and we've been doing this through something we've got called the work life manifesto uh, there's a series of tips which we've done in terms of how you manage your time so making sure that you're not always on that there is a defined start that there is a defined end and during the working day uh, it's making sure that you avoid that zoom fatigue or, or, or the digital fatigue by making sure that for example if you have got back-to-back zoom calls then you arrange them to 25 minutes or for 55 minutes depending whether they're meant to be half an hour an hour long just so that there is this the, these micro breaks between uh, you know, th- these ongoing calls. 
OK, well, we'll look in a bit more detail at some of the things which maybe organisations ought to be doing to sort of mitigate some of these uh, symptoms. But let's look in a bit more detail about the the actual indications that things are wrong for people. So, Dr. Nilla Ahmed, I mean, this can start, can't it, just with physical things? I mean, just sore eyes or headaches, something like that? Mm. Very often. And many of us don't have appropriate work chairs to be sitting on. You know, people who work sitting on their dining chairs for seven, eight hours a day because they're just fixed to fixed to their screen. So and, and we're looking at screens, they're in such a short range. And that's really stressful on our eyes, but it's a lot of eye strain. Um, but it's also psychologically stressful because we're looking at people almost within, within what we could consider our intimate distance. And so our brain is struggling to figure out why are these strangers in the space where my loved one should be. And at the same time, when we've had social distancing, our loved ones have actually been in a space that is reserved for acquaintances and people we don't know. So our brains are really struggling to, to figure out what's going on. And Johnny Gifford, this can spill out into sort of more mental issues, harder to define perhaps, but uh, shortness of temper, we might make decisions hastily, we're just overwhelmed by the sheer weight of work that we've got. And this is exacerbated when you're on your own. Yeah, there's various factors, I think, included in this, um, which ideally, you know, you could look at in their own right. So as Neelu's already mentioned, there's the... Uh, attention deficit and, and the, the fact of task switching between tasks is something which is cognitively demanding on us. So that's that can be a drain. If as managers you can reduce the amount of time that people are switching from one thing to another, then that's that's going to help. But also, yes, you've got factors like overall workload, which often can go up during times of a recession, for example. So you know, that's that's something to, to bear in mind. Workload can also go up just when there's organisational change and the massive move to homeworking has obviously been a, a big instance of organisational change. And then there's this, this ongoing, really important aspect of, of the autonomy that people have, how, you know, whether people are sort of empowered to take control over their, their work. So there's a number of different factors yeah. that are at play here. And Mark Whedon, what's kind of serious about this is that employers may not be picking up that the way they're now working is maybe causing people to experience some of these problems. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you try and pick up on issues and how you can start to try and relieve them. In other words, what should HR be doing about all this? So the, the main thing is just to stay close to, to what is going on. And there are formal and informal ways of doing that. So, for example, within my own business, uh, we do uh, very regular surveys, pulse surveys, and we've adapted the questions for the COVID environment uh, where we specifically ask questions around how people are feeling about their work-life balance. How do you know people tell the truth? Uh, they might just say everything's fine when it isn't. We do follow-ups. So uh, we've had uh, focus groups, for example, uh, but we've created channels, firstly for managers, so that they can share ideas around how to recognise signs of stress or overwork or dealing with work-life balance. They can show ideas which have worked for them, articles from the press around how to deal with it, etc. And we also do that for employees where everybody can make comments around um, you know, how they've been experiencing things and things which they've doing themselves, which have, have worked for them. So it, it, it's all around transparency, open communications, trust, and, and just creating that environment where people feel that they can actually come forward and, and say things. Can you just give us an example of things you've picked up and then what you might have changed? This week alone, I've, I've probably had... 
um, at least two, possibly three conversations where people have come forward to me and saying that they have been uh, struggling with their work-life balance. So we've, we've talked about how that's manifesting itself, what they've been doing so far to try and uh, uh, you know, resolve those particular issues. Uh, I referenced our work-life manifesto before. So we, we go back into the work-life manifesto to see what they what ideas they've used and what other ideas they might want to use. So the fact that you know I've, I've had three people this week alone approaching me as, as, as the HR director, that's kind of indicative that people do feel comfortable coming forward and, and that they do know that the company has their back where they are struggling with these sorts of issues. I mean, Nilu, you counsel people. Do you think everybody calls HR and gets some satisfaction here? I'd be quite cautious about that. Um, Mark sounds like he's got a really fabulous company and people are coming to him, but I wonder if it is as open uh, as as HR would like to think it is. Um, people often, when we see people in clinics and, and clients, they're very worried about divulging any stresses to their employers for, for lack of of understanding about stress. Um, and often people don't understand themselves. They'll think stress, I've, I've got stress, that's really normal in the workplace. And that begins to trickle down and have a really big impact on their work, on their productivity, on their mental health before they even recognise it. Many people think that talking to HR about mental health issues might result in them potentially losing their job or being seen as weak and not being able to, to get the support. And I've spoken to people who do have mental health programmes at work and, and they're not really appropriate for, for that particular group. So um, somebody I spoke to said, you know, my workplace has got a really great mental health service, but it's for white people by white people. And so it's not reaching all of the the diversity of employees at all times. I, I do acknowledge what, what Nilu is, is saying. And, and you know, there's organisations I've known and organisations I've worked for, for example, where there wouldn't be people coming forward to HR with these particular issues. Within our company, part of our advice might be when they do come to us is, you know, we have an employee assistance programme, for example. So where there is reticence about approaching a boss or a colleague or HR about mental health issues or other issues which they perceive as, as quite sensitive, then we direct them to the employee assistance programme, which is independent of the company, is confidential, and it's advice to instant uh, professional counselling services and support. So that, that is one of the areas which we do promote as well. So, Johnny Gifford, I mean, does the CIPD have anything to say about how proactive HR is in these kind of situations? Indeed it does. <laughs> I mean, the last year has seen both a huge increase in the focus on well-being, not just on uh, physical well-being and, and the COVID pandemic itself, but on things like mental well-being at work. So we see that uh, with our, our members uh, within the HR community, but also we see that with, with other business leaders. There really is a big wave of, of increased interest in the area of, of workplace well-being. And at the same time, the pandemic has pushed many employers to support flexible working in a way which has not happened previously. So but there is clearly a gap, Johnny, between best practice, the kind of things which uh, professionals like to exchange ideas about, and the reality of all these tech stacks. And in a way, the technology kind of dominating how people work and maybe senior managers just not picking up on how people are feeling and how it's affecting their productivity. I think that it's more how technology is used that dominates people's 
work and you know just as it's management practices that dominate people's work rather than technology itself what i'd say though is that the because of the the, the increase in well-being uh, the the changes in in how we work over the last year there is a big opportunity for employers to really take stock and to to make sure that they are uh, focusing on well-being in a and work-life balance and related areas in a way which they haven't done before so th- there are some real opportunities there is some appetite to follow through with them at the same time we do need to be careful there there is the potential, as I say, with, with mobile technology in particular, to be always on. And just because, you know, we can always be available, it doesn't mean that we should. On the contrary, we need to be particularly careful about protecting our work-life boundaries. So there are risks, uh, but there's also, I think, a great appetite to, to, to take stock and move on positively from the, you know, the huge changes that we've seen in the last year. So, Dr. Nidal Ahmed, let's have some practical ideas for both for individuals and organisations to try and avoid the worst of these issues, to get the the best of technology without some of the disadvantages. For individuals, it's really simple tips that people find very difficult to put into place. So it's trying to establish a boundary between your work life and your home life. If, If you're working, as I do, at the dining room table, pop everything in a box at the the end of the day so you're not looking at it, you don't have to see it. You can at least create that visual barrier for your brain. And that's one, you know, you start to work on one thing at a time to try and take your mind off work. Try and do a a fake commute is something I always recommend to people. Even if it's a five-minute walk around the block, as soon as you're out of the house, five minutes can become 10, especially if the weather's nice. You don't have to go to your workplace and come back. Just get outside and then at the end of the day, do the same thing as well. So you're mentally switching off from work. If possible, don't use the camera. Um, Zoom meetings, we're not used to seeing people looking at us all the time and nor do we look at everyone when we're in a meeting. We're surrounded by people. We only look at one or two people in a meeting. And it's the same as being in a lift. When you're in a lift, you don't look at anyone. Everyone looks at the floor. But Zoom meetings are like being in a lift and forced to look at everyone. And that's really uncomfortable. So try not to put that pressure on yourself. And organisations can encourage staff to keep their cameras off when they're in meetings as well so that we don't have that um, on our brains as well. Mark Wheaton, I can see you nodding. Obviously, you go for a little run around the block before you start work in the morning. What other tips have you used as an organisation to take the pressure off people in ways that you can? Yeah, so some of the um, the, the tips which Neil mentioned, uh, for sure we do those. So we're emphasising you don't always have to be on, use do not disturb on your collaboration tools, don't respond to emails at times which you, which you wouldn't be expected to work, You know, carve out that beginning and end time. At a more practical level, what we found last year, for example, were people were really reluctant to take their annual leave entitlement just because I couldn't go away somewhere nice and sunny. Uh, so we actually said, do take your annual leave because it's important just to take that step away from Zoom and that break from your emails. So even though you can't go away and it's got to be close to home, do take your annual leave. So we, we, we emphasise that as well. We've talked about diet, so making sure that you're enjoying a balanced diet and having at least one decent meal a day and away from your laptop as well. Uh, looking after the eyes is really important because if you've, if you've had sustained time, you know, staring at your laptop during Zoom calls, uh, just making sure that you, you regularly look into the distance, you're blinking rapidly, you're keeping your eyes moisture because that they quite got, get often overlooked. We've also recognised that people 
are missing the office, strangely, because there is a social dimension there. Um, so particularly during the first lock, lockdown, we've, we've changed a little bit during the, the, the more recent ones. Uh, we tried to replicate that social dimension with 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 virtual events. Um, I've got to say voluntary, so we, we weren't making people attend these things, but just just arranging virtual events which people could come into if they wanted to. Well, another another office quiz. Yes, I, I hold my hand up. We did have quizzes, but we also had things like you know, just casual things like coffee mornings. We had beer and pizza. We had virtual pokers poker nights and just drop-ins. So just having a, a Zoom room, which was open, people could just drop in and have a chat. It's just not work-related. It's just having that social chat. Some of this is really well meant, but Johnny Gifford, I'm feeling a little bit queasy about this. If I've already spent the day with people, do I have to spend the night as well? <laughs> well, perhaps not the night, but I, I think that the, the tips and the, the kind of hacks that, that Mark and Neil have been mentioning are, are, are really useful. You know, it, it speaks to the fact that we're habitual creatures and we need to incorporate sort of little tricks and on, on how we can work in ways which are not just effective but but uh, healthy. One thing that I would add is that we really need to get to the bottom of how to have effective meetings rather than just bundling everyone into hour-long meetings. Anyone who's got a, a, a vaguely sort of relevant role to play to be included in zoom meetings and you end up with massive you know 20 plus people in zoom meetings we need to think about how to make the best use of people's time to be more selective about who needs to be in individual meetings how we manage the return to work will be is, is like another complexity which is coming at us so with some people in the office some people not you know how do you how do you manage meetings there? But I think effective use of meetings, effective use of time between meetings. So can you take stuff out of the meetings like a presentation or looking at material and get people to do that between meetings? Do you think some of this stuff falls between HR and management because I mean as you say that I can see yeah that's a fantastic idea but actually who's going to ensure that it happens because it's kind of a bit organizational but it's to do with getting the job done and there's nobody in the driving seat of this everything's become rather rudderless hasn't it in this new way of working so much of people management falls between a dedicated HR function remember not even all organizations have an HR function and line managers so yes absolutely Absolutely. It's a shared responsibility. But for example, HR has a HR functions have, have a clear role to play in sending messages about what's expected, about what's important, encouraging managers, for example, to to empower their employees so that they can they can choose how they do their work and even when they do their work so that they've got more control over their work-life balance. So it's it's a shared responsibility. Dr Neely, what do you think about that? Because you hear this from the sharp end with people who are not getting on so well at work at the moment sometimes. I think um, having very well switched on managers is absolutely key. People are much more likely to talk to their managers before they go to HR, but the managers are that sort of media link between HR and the, the person doing the job. And so to make sure that managers are really clued up and are able to feel confident in offering flexibility. Um, not everyone will want to continue to work from home, but some people will. I was in a five hour meeting yesterday and I just thought, oh, do I really need to be here? 
but they're easier to attend. One of the things that I found since we were working in lockdown is that actually I can attend these for four or five hours because I can multitask. Now, we know that that actually makes you less productive and is terrible for your mental health and terrible for all things that we're talking about today. But the part of me is, is worrying, as, as with my colleagues, is what happens when we return to work? Will that option be there for some people to log in uh, remotely if they have chosen to, to take this work-life balance and work from home? Or will everyone be expected to turn up at work for these long meetings? And those are decisions that do have to be made at a HR and senior management level before people come back into work. But these are the worries that people are thinking about now as we think about returning to work, is that how is it going to look in the workplace? And Mark Whedon, have you seen a change in managers as they wrestle with all this? I know before you were telling me a story about uh, a particular manager who was finding it very difficult to adjust to uh, employees having this power and not having to be under his thumb all the time. From my perspective, the role of the manager has, has actually come to the fore during COVID. Um, it, it's been a, a very traumatic time for many. It's, it's, it's been a big disruptor. And so the role of leaders is, is as, as important as ever. And, and before COVID, you had certain types of leaders which liked seeing people in the office. You had others who were more relaxed. And, and this has been kind of a, a level set amongst that and um, a, you know, a way to emphasise what, what good leadership actually means. So the, the sorts of discussions we've been having with, with our managers is you know, simple things, making sure you're having regular check-ins. Secondly, showing up as empathetic. So how are you? How's your family? What's going on in your life? Is there anything I can be doing to help you be more productive or manage your work-life balance better? So we're trying to encourage managers to get close, stay close, make it genuine. And equally, they need to tend to the team and its dynamics. So if the team is remote, just making sure what impact that is having on its ability to perform as a team. Um, I think Neil mentioned already, you know, it's empowering people to have more say over how they structure their work. So that's important as well from a management perspective. And then the final thing I'd, I'd say is, is just letting people know that it's okay to prioritise domestic issues over work-related issues. There's been this collision of, of work life, as, as people have said before. So it, it's fine. There are going to be distractions. Uh, you might not always show up face to face. You might not always be on, uh, you know, always on. You might have to rush downstairs to open the door for the for the UPS guy. And just letting people know that that's, that's fine. We, we accept that. And of course, Nilu, there is the danger here that we might see this as a little bit too negative as we talked about some of the downsides of uh, the sort of digital changes we've seen in the office. But like, for example, now you can get a, a doctor's consultation and maybe refer to specialists or something much more efficiently. I mean, there are a lot of benefits that have come out of the ability to get things done uh, without seeing people face to face. Uh, so much benefit. And I think we'll see those benefits really bloom as we come out of lockdown, because then we'll be able to, to move around in a less restricted way. So all the little things that we couldn't do before that maybe actually I'll go to a gym class at 9.30. And I know I can work my day around that I can start work a bit earlier, or I can finish a bit later, because I don't have the commute to do as well. So there are things that people can really begin to take advantage of. 
people who have care responsibilities, that makes their life so much easier to be able to work from home. People who maybe have chronic illnesses or do suffer from anxiety and worry about the impact of just getting into work, the fatigue of that. So there are lots and lots of benefits for lots of individual groups. But generally in society, I think we know that a happy workforce is a much more productive workforce, is a much more loyal workforce. You get greater retention of staff, greater productivity. So working to, to understand how we can best meet the needs of a really generally diverse workforce to be able to offer that ebb and flow. What the lockdown has done is it's shown organisations that actually this works, working from home really does work. And so that should be something that we can really build into practices going forward. Great. And a lot of that, Johnny Gifford, is kind of reflected in the CIPD's work, uh, the latest health, health and wellbeing report. Yeah, and uh, evidence reviews that we've put out, for example, on uh, supporting employee resilience and a new one we've got coming out soon on mental well-being and digital work. I would agree with, with Nilo certainly, that there are opportunities. I think that these are opportunities that need to be consciously and deliberately grasped because there is a real danger that we just return to default. As we come out of lockdown, we just go back to the old habits setting up hour-long meetings face-to-face, everyone has to be in the office, even if the work that they could be doing from home. So I think that, you know, there are real opportunities to, to grasp here. You know, we've seen huge changes. We've shown ourselves that we can, that many more people can work at home, for example, than we, than we previously thought. And we just need to make sure that we take that learning and embed it into how we're managing people. Now, I know mental health is often seen on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. I was struck by uh, the New York Times referring to what it called the neglected middle child of mental health, languishing, not good, not thoroughly depressed, but an absence of well-being, which certainly dulls your focus. Uh, so seeing friends and colleagues languishing might also be a sign of their digital fatigue. And we certainly all need a work reset when we start to languish. Lots of good ideas uh, that we've heard uh, today to help. Loads more as I say, on the CIPD website, including that latest health and wellbeing report. But many thanks to our guests, Dr Nilu Ahmed, Mark Whedon and Johnny Gifford. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an edition. But until next time, from all of us here at the CIPD, it's goodbye.